Let's pray as we open God's word this morning. Father, we turn to you who authored these words by the Holy Spirit and to your Son, Jesus, who these words speak of. And we ask that you'd make us know who Jesus is. Not just words on a page or words in a sermon, but your words to us personally, each of us individually in our lives, and also together as your gathered people. Thank you for the privilege it is to be here. Thank you that when we gather in your name, you've promised to be with us. We recognize now the presence of the Holy Spirit. I pray you'd open us to receive from you what you'd have us know and draw us near by faith. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's great to be with you this morning. Hope you had a good start to the day. And even if you haven't, it's good that you're here. Uh, I've, I'm a bit of a fan of fantasy books and movies uh, and science fiction, but I particularly love The Lord of the Rings, one of my favourites. And in The Lord of the Rings, there's two characters which really stand out to me, and they're very different. The first is Frodo. Frodo is a hobbit, and if you don't know what hobbits are, they're kind of about one metre tall or three feet tall in the old language. Uh, they've got hairy feet. They're like small people, but they're fully grown. They're adults. And uh, they and Frodo, one of these hobbits, is entrusted with the most difficult and dangerous task of his generation. In fact, probably of uh, the millennia in which they live. Frodo is in task to destroy the ring of power and to take it to a place called Mount Doom, which you could imagine is not a great place to be. Uh, In the midst of all the enemies, all the evil of the world, Frodo is tasked to take this ring to that place. But Frodo is not what you might imagine the sort of person that would be sent on this adventure. He's not big. He's not strong. He's not a warrior. He's not a mighty politician. In fact, he's one of the weakest and most humble people in all of Middle Earth. And yet he was the one who was chosen to take it. That's the first person that I think of. The second is very different. His name is Boromir. And Boromir is a big, strong man with a big beard and long hair. And he's a warrior. He's the son of the ruler of a city called Minas Tirith. And he thinks that he is the one who should be carrying this ring because he's built for it. He's won many battles. And yet in the end, we see a great reversal. We see that Boromir's pride undoes him totally. Boromir's pride means that he tries to take the ring of power by force and ends up getting killed for it. And yet Frodo, in his weakness and in his humility, manages to succeed and win by destroying the ring of power. Not because of his own great strength, but because he was weak enough to need the help of others. And you see that in his best friend, Sam. Now, the guy who wrote this book series. His name's J.R.R. Tolkien, Christian. And he wrote in some subtle things about Christianity, which I think are really important for us to take note of. One of the things that we see in The Lord of the Rings is Frodo and how he was chosen. He was not chosen by merit. That is, 
big, strong warrior, able to defeat all the enemies. Good track record. He can hold a big sword. He couldn't even hold a big sword. He'd have a little sword because he was just a small hobbit. This tells us something about how God chooses people. He doesn't choose them by merit, as in, are you good enough for God? Because the Bible tells us we're not good enough for God, or as it says a little bit later in this, worthy. Is anyone truly worthy of God? Now that's got a bit of a twist in it at the end of the verses, which I'm going to explain a little bit later. But is anyone truly worthy of God in this room or in all of the world? The Bible tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so J.R.R. Tolkien is giving us a little hint about how God works. He doesn't choose people based on merit, but he must bring people to a place of humility that they would become his people. Now, in our Bible reading today, we've seen how Jesus chooses his people and also how he sends them out. This is what uh, authors talk about is an act of grace in the way that he chooses his people and also in the way that he sends them out. It's not through pride and power that you succeed in coming to God and being one of God's people. Rather, it is through humility and the power of God in you that God is glorified. And so there's two things I'm going to tell you this morning, and they are the grace of Jesus in choosing and the grace of Jesus in going. So first, the grace of Jesus in choosing. Now in these first four verses, we're introduced to the, the band of misfits, the 12 disciples of Jesus. You haven't, probably haven't heard them called the band of misfits, but that's what they are because they are a very interesting group of people. Now there's three of them in particular I want to point out to you because the author points them out for us and see how they were chosen by grace and actually find out something that we can learn from it. So who are these three people? Well, firstly, there's Peter, who's pointed out in verse 2 as being first. Simon, who is called Peter. Secondly, we're going to look at Matthew, who, and he's the author of this letter. He introduces himself here as the tax collector, which is very interesting. And finally, someone a bit more dark, Judas, Judas Iscariot. So what do we learn about these three people? Well, first we learn that we're chosen by grace. See, Peter and Matthew, Jesus said, come and follow me. And what did they do? They came and followed Jesus. Peter was a fisherman. He was a bit of a tradie in his day. His job was to go out and fish for a living, bring it back, sell it at the market. That's how he earned his living. He was not an educated man. In fact, people later in the Bible are at pains to point out that Peter is not an educated man. And yet, Jesus calls him. Matthew's, in fact, a little bit more interesting because Matthew is a tax collector. Now, tax collectors weren't well liked by people in general. They're a little bit different to the tax man of today because tax collectors in the time of the Bible were able to make something on top of what they took. So they had an incentive to take more than they should and by doing that, they became very wealthy. But also by doing that, they were, became outcasts of religious society. Now, interestingly, Matthew here in the text says he was the one that was there and identifies himself as the tax collector. Not just as Matthew, but Matthew the tax collector. 
Why would he write himself in to the story as someone who is probably looked down upon by other people? It is only to point out the grace of God that it's not because of how good you are that God might choose you, but because of his love for you that he might choose you. And that is called grace. So we learn that we're chosen by grace. Secondly, we learn that God uses the gifts that he gives us for his glory. Notice that Peter, in this text, is called first. First. That means that Peter was recognized as a leader amongst the disciples. So Jesus had made Peter a leader. He was one of the key guys, the first people that Jesus would go to amongst these first 12 disciples of Jesus. But Peter went on a journey. Peter was not a perfect leader. Peter would like to put himself first when Jesus said the first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus said, if you want to be first, you need to be last, which is a little bit confusing. And Peter was still trying to work out what this meant. But Jesus was explaining that's how he is as a leader. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Peter had to go on this journey of pride and then utter humility. When, of course, you may know that towards the end of these gospel accounts, Peter denied Jesus three times. He denied this leader that he said, I'll follow you to the grave, and he did not follow Jesus to the grave. Peter denied Jesus three times and then was humbled because of it. But it was in that place of failure, in that place of humility that Peter went into, that Jesus was moulding the man who would then be the right leader for his church. Now this tells us something here today, something very important, that God uses our personal failure and even humiliation for our good and our growth. God uses our personal failure and even our humiliation for our good and our growth and his glory. Many of us in this room have been humbled at different times in our life. We've experienced failure. We might have had a failed relationship. We may have failed in business or in our career or just not lived up to the mark, which we thought we would. We may have failed because we've had sickness or a disease or chronic illness or a disability. And we think, well, God's done with us because we haven't got his blessing. And yet that's not true. Because it's in these places and in these times that we learn something, something very, very important in a place of failure, is that it's not by merit that God loves us. It's because he loves us for, for who we are as people whom he came to die for. That is why he has grace for us. It's not because of what we do, but it's because of who he is that he loves us. And so you can know that in those times when you're failing, and you might even be in a season of failure right now, things are not working out like you'd hoped and planned. That God is using this season for your good, your growth, and his glory, just as he did with Peter 
and he restored him sometime later. Matthew is another example of using the gifts that Matthew had for God's glory. Notice Matthew was a tax collector. He's probably good with numbers, good with money. He may have studied business and finance if he was here today. And then what does Matthew do with his skills of accounting? He uses them to recount what God has done in Jesus Christ through writing this very gospel. Think about it. God moved a man who was using his skills with finance and business, who was using it for his own benefit and profit in evil ways. He was ripping people off. God transformed him to be a man who would use those skills. And you, you notice, and many uh, theologians point out that Matthew's gospel is meticulous in its order. Meticulous in the way that Matthew would go back and point out all the fulfillments that Jesus has made of the promises of the Old Testament. All the ways that Jesus is truly the Jewish Messiah and the one who was promised. Matthew is meticulous in the way that he does. It's one of the longest Gospels. So God repurposes this man to use him for his glory. He used his gift of numbers and accounting and changed it. What does this tell us? That God has gifted you to work for his glory. Doesn't matter what your skill set is, God wants to use your skill set for his glory, not just your own profit. He wants to change you on the inside so that you're not just using it so that you'll make money out of this, so that you'll be better off out of this, so that you'll have a better reputation, so that you'll advance further in your career, so that you'll have a better status within your friends and family. He wants to use you for his glory that you may be a better servant of others. And this is what I notice about Matthew, that he wrote himself in as the tax collector and he wrote about how he got converted only the last chapter and we don't hear much about Matthew again doesn't big note himself but quietly he recorded it he went away and wrote it and 2,000 years later we're still reading it and that tells me that God can do much with little that tells me that God can use people who are willing to serve him in great and powerful ways that we may never recognize in our generation it's an encouraging thought for us It also tells us that we can use our gifts and even be under the authority of Jesus but not be his people. That's where we get to Judas. Right at the end, verse 4, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. This is a warning for us. Judas was around. Jesus had called Judas. He'd become one of the inner circle of Jesus' people. He was under the authority of Jesus. He went out doing many good things. In fact, Judas was the one who was supposed to keep the money for this band of disciples. And it all got to him in the end. The pride got to him. The money got to him. And it says in a very dark passage later in this gospel that Satan entered into him when he went to betray Jesus. This is a warning for us. You may have gifts. 
You may even think that you're using them for God. You may be a religious person. You might have been around church for a long time, and yet you may not be one of God's people. It's a warning that you will be caught out. That God knows the thoughts of every person. And if you continue in that path, like Judas, it will only lead to your self-destruction. So we've learned something about those that Jesus chooses. I want to tell you now that Jesus' grace will either humble you or humiliate you. Will either humble you or humiliate you. Firstly, Matthew. We read earlier that Matthew left everything behind to go and follow Jesus. What does it mean that Matthew left everything behind to go and follow Jesus? Well, Matthew was a wealthy man. Tax collectors were making bank. They knew how to get ahead in the world and they did it by ripping off others. But they were very, very wealthy. And what does Matthew leave behind? To follow Jesus, everything that he'd built his life upon. His career, which was probably going quite well by that point. His investment, his finances. He went to live basically homeless with Jesus for the next three years and to give of himself and his finances totally to the cause of the gospel. Matthew had to humble himself in order to follow Jesus. And we are often left with this same choice. Jesus talks about money more than he does hell. So we should probably listen when he talks about it. We're often left with this choice. We can have earthly riches. We can pursue career, status, material wealth, possessions, or we can choose Jesus. Jesus actually boils this down and says you cannot love God and money. They're like oil and water. They don't go together. That's a scary thought because we love money. We love it. We love the things we get from money. We even give money in church. We talk about money. We read books about money and how better to invest it by a guy who's barefoot apparently. We love it. And yet Jesus says you cannot love both God and money. It is a dangerous thought and Matthew's example tells us that we must set aside our love for money and put our love and trust then in Jesus if we want to be his people. How can we learn to trust God when the whole world around us and everything we're taught from when we're young to when we grow up is you need to get a good job, you need to earn lots of money, you need to look after yourself, you need to save for later in life, you need to Don't get a deposit for a house. You need to buy a house. You need to pay off the house. You need to get a good car. You need to have a car that's, you know, less than 10 years old because if it's over 10 years old, you'll pay more. You know, you just, you can hear all of the conversations that you've probably had about 50 times, like I have about 50 times with 100 different people. That doesn't work in maths, but that's how it works. How do we work this out? Well, Matthew's story actually points us to someone else. It points us to a generous father, a generous father that was willing to give his only son 
And that Father is God the Father, and that Son is Jesus. And the Bible tells us in Romans 8.32 that if the Father was so willing to give His only Son and not withhold Him, then will He not graciously give us all things? Can we not trust God with our daily provision? Can we not trust God to give us everything we need for this life? We have proof because He gave His only Son for us, the most valuable and important person in all of the world. He was willing to give Him. And so, of course, He will graciously give us all things. And so money no longer needs to rule us. And Matthew experienced and found that out. I want to read something to you from a guy called Charles Spurgeon in a sermon. He said, Many to obtain a higher wage have left holy companionship and sacred opportunities for hearing the word and growing in grace. They have lost their Sabbaths, quitted a soul-feeding ministry, and fallen among worldlings to their own sorrowful loss. Such persons are as foolish as the poor Indians who gave the Spaniards gold in exchange for paltry beads. Riches procured by impoverishing the soul are always a curse. To increase your business so that you cannot attend weeknight services is really to become poorer. To give up heavenly pleasure and receive earthly cares in exchange is a sorry sort of barter. This guy's like straight to the point. I love it. But it's so true. We don't like talking about it that much. But the love of money will get into your life so easily, particularly if you're a Christian. It's so easy to get in and remain unnoticed. And it starts with the test. What will you choose? To follow God and to have more opportunities to grow in Him or follow a career? Which one will you choose? It's not to say that having a career is a bad thing. It's not to say that you need to be at church every single Sunday of the year, 52 weeks of the year. But it is to say that we must be much more careful with what is going on on the inside because it is very easy to find greater riches in the world and yet become poorer in Christ Jesus. Very, very easy. That's Matthew's humility. Secondly, we see Peter's humility. Peter denied Jesus when he should have denied himself. Peter was scared. There was a moment when Jesus had been arrested. He was about to be executed. Peter may have feared that if he put his hand up and said, I'm with Jesus, that he too would have been executed. He knew where things were going. And so what did Peter do? He denied Jesus when he should have denied his fears. Now in a secular world, in a workplace, three strikes, you're out. You get a warning, you get a second warning, and then the third time, you're done. You don't get a second chance. You're fired, as someone with red hair would like to say. Not me. If you've seen the show, you'll know what I'm talking about. So, Peter was someone who had failed in life. And if, it, and if Peter was around today, just in an ordinary secular environment, in a workplace, whatever, he would have totally failed and been finished. But Peter's story actually points to something about Jesus too. It points to a pattern of self-denial and restoration that we actually see in Jesus. You see, what Peter should have done 
when he denied Jesus, was deny himself and say, yes, I'm one of his people. And that is what Jesus did the night before he was betrayed. When Jesus was in a garden, in fact, the same night that he was betrayed, when Jesus was in a garden and praying, he said, not my will but yours be done because he knew what was coming for him too. Jesus went through a pattern of self-denial and he took it to the grave. And then on the third day, Jesus rose again, being restored fully because his self-denial showed his obedience. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it showed that the Father had fully accepted Jesus. And so the humility of Jesus by denying himself shows us the same pattern that we can follow. That through self-denial, we might find restoration. And that's exactly what Jesus did for Peter. Even when Peter had failed, and we said that he denied Jesus three times. After Jesus had died and risen again, Peter had sort of given up, I guess. He went back fishing to his old job. You know, because he thought he was going to be first and possibly a preacher and possibly a leader in this new movement. He was excited. He really believed that Jesus is the Messiah. He said, he declared once that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And yet then he goes back fishing. He's sort of given up. And Jesus meets him, calls him, and restores him. And says, Peter, feed my sheep. In fact, three times Jesus says to Peter to feed his sheep and to feed his lambs. Three times, the same number of times that Peter denied Jesus is the same number of times that Jesus called Peter to restoration, showing us that Peter is fully restored. Now, this tells us something really interesting as we zoom in depth on a couple of these guys' stories, that in grace, Jesus can restore you from your failures. I dare say that some of us in the room today have given up on fully serving Jesus because we think we've failed. We think we've failed in life. We might have some failed relationships or experiences. We might have had a go of ministry. We might have put a hand up to serve in the church. It didn't work out that well. And now some years have passed and we're not willing to put our hand up again. We'd rather go back fishing. I want to say to you today, whoever you are, that Jesus can restore you. Because that's what he's in the business of doing. Just as Jesus rose from the dead and his body was restored to life, so too he's in the business of resurrecting people out of their failure and bringing them into true life. And it comes through trusting him. And so I want you to know that Jesus can overcome your fear that you may have in your life at the moment about stepping out in faith. And Jesus wants you to live a life restored and full of courage. And finally, we learn about the third person of whether grace humbles or humiliates. And we come to Judas again. We get to the end of Matthew's Gospel and Judas comes out fully as who he is, the betrayer, the one who put his master 
who gave him over to the authorities who wanted to kill him, who arranged that he might be captured and killed for just 30 pieces of silver. I want you to notice that it wasn't to the end that Judas was exposed and humiliated. Now this is that awkward point again where I remind you that there are many people who say, Lord, Lord, look at all the great things I've done in your name. And then God will go, get away from me, I do not know you. Because there are many, that the Bible says, there are many who, who say that they're Jesus people. They even say they've served under his authority. They say they've done great things for him and yet they're not his people. And it will be exposed at the end. And there will be humiliation for those that are in that boat. But Judas' story also points to Jesus in an interesting way. Because it points to Jesus as the God who was willing to be betrayed by his own people in order that he might make a way of salvation for them. It points to the humility of Jesus. We go forward a bit more to Acts chapter 2. And we find that Peter is restored. He's actually preaching after the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And he preaches to a crowd of people. There must have been thousands in that crowd. They'd all come because there's been this speaking in tongues, these strange manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And Peter's up there preaching to people who just a few days earlier, 40 days earlier, were crying out, crucify him, crucify him to Jesus. And Peter's saying to them, He's the Messiah that you killed and you need to believe in him. And what happened to them? They were cut to the heart, it says. They were cut to the heart. They said, what must we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does that tell us? That tells us to those who've fallen away, to those who've rejected Jesus, to those who've maybe even betrayed him said things they shouldn't have about Jesus in their life, that there is a way forward for you. And it's in grace that you can believe in him. And just like Peter's declaration to a crowd of people who 40 days earlier were crying out, crucify him, that they too can be saved, that they too can be welcomed in. It truly is by grace and not by merit that people can come to God through Jesus Christ. And so it is good news. So warning comes with great possibility. A warning is, don't wait to the end and be humiliated. The great possibility is, if you turn to Jesus today in humility, your debts will be wiped clean. Your slate will be wiped off. The record of debt will be extinguished. Jesus will be your Lord God will be your father and you will be his children and you'll be at rest with him forevermore starting today. And it is good news. Secondly and briefly, I want to talk to you about the grace in going. So I've talked about the grace in being sent. I want to talk to you about the grace in going. That is grace in God's provision when we're on his mission. We move from verses 5 to 15. Now we see in these verses that Jesus is preparing his disciples. He's moved from giving them authority to instructing them, getting them ready to go out. They're going to preach. They're going to heal. They're going to cast out demons. 
They're going to do all sorts of fancy things. It even says raise the dead. They received power and instruction from Jesus to do his things. But how does Jesus empower his people? There's this really interesting part of a verse, the second half of verse 8, and it says how they are to be empowered. Second half of verse 8 says, You received without paying, now give without pay. You receive without paying, now give without pay. That is a reminder that it is the grace of Jesus, not because of how good they are or what they've done, not because you know, they're these great preachers and great apostles and they've done all these wonderful things. No, because Jesus loved them, because Jesus called them, because Jesus chose them. And because of that, he would then empower them. And in the same way that they have received without paying themselves, that they should give also without pay. This tells us something. This tells us that to the degree that we freely receive what Jesus has done for us is to the degree that we will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve Him. Let me say that again. To the degree that you realize what Jesus has freely given you is to the same degree that Jesus will empower you to do his mission. There's this thing that people often talk about as powerless Christianity. That is, we're working really hard to share this good news about Jesus, to serve the poor, to do good works in the community, to build a community of faithful people who love and trust in Jesus. And yet in Australia, not working that well. In fact, the census says that they were in a steep decline at the moment. There's this new category of no religion that 30% of Australians self-identify in. There's been a long time when we have been trusting in methods of trying to reach people or do Christian things rather than believing in the great authority and power of Jesus and how much he's freely given us, as we sang about, every spiritual blessing. To the degree that we realize that is to the degree that we'll be empowered by Jesus for his mission. That is understanding that Jesus won everything for us that we'll ever need. And he's gifted it to us in the Holy Spirit. And so therefore we have every resource of heaven at our disposal to serve God faithfully. It's very important for us to know. So that is how Jesus empowers his people. Then how does Jesus provide for his people? Verses 9 and 10 tell us that the laborer deserves his food. That is, they're not to collect things along the way. They're not to prepare too much for themselves. But the laborer deserves his food. That means that when you are serving God, you don't trust in your own powers of provision, but you trust in God. Because often, and I speak from my personal experience, often God will put you in a place where you cannot depend upon yourself, if you, that place of faith, where you cannot depend upon your own powers of provision. You cannot depend upon your own finances. You cannot depend upon your own material possessions. You need to depend on God himself. He will often put you in that place. I remember when uh, I was about to go to Bible college. Uh, I was about a year before and my wife and I were looking for a place to stay. We did the sums and we didn't have much money. So we, we were concerned about putting food on the table. Had uh, one young child and we we're going to have another one on the way. And so we began looking 
And we looked in a certain suburban because I thought it was a good place to live and it was, or we would have just scraped by. And then eventually through a set of circumstances, a friend of mine recommended this place that I should go and look at. And I went and looked at this place and the guy who met me said, oh, I think I know your father. And I was like, here we go. And he's like, yeah, 40 years ago, your dad became the minister at our church and we became Christians when he came and started sharing the gospel there. And I was like, all right, I think this is the place for us to stay. Anyway, we, we ended up staying in that place at one third of the market price for rental for my whole time at Bible college. Now that tells me something very important. It was, a, it was a great lesson for me, but I think it's a good lesson for you. Is that God will provide when you step out in faith. But if you're not willing to step out in faith, then you won't be able to serve Jesus. Because he often puts you in a place where it's beyond human means. Why does he do that? Why does God often put us in a situation where it's too hard for us to pull off by ourselves? Or like some building project that we're trying to do and a debt that's too big for us to ask that God might pay it off in full before we move in. Why would God ask us to do things like that? To give himself the glory. Because there's no way that a human being can pull these things off. And when you're in that place, it's really exciting. Because you know that God can do something that no other person could ever do. And so when you're tested, when you're tested by your circumstances, like these guys who had to go out by faith, preaching and healing and doing all the things that Jesus told them to do, they had to trust that Jesus would provide for them. And you too, if you want to be faithful to Jesus, will have to step out in faith and trust that Jesus will provide for you. And he will. And he will get the glory. And you can test him on his promises. That's good news. Finally, those who receive the gospel must do it by grace. So we talked about those who are being sent, but also these verses speak about those who will hear. And just as the disciples were not to take any silver or gold from people. People cannot pay them for this preaching and this healing ministry and this deliverance ministry that they have. People cannot pay them for it because it is freely given. This tells us something really important. There is a a thought for many people that we must do good things in order to get God's favour. And if you do enough good things, on the last day, Jesus will accept you. He will tick all the boxes. You know, turned up to church, gave money, baptized, confirmed, you know, good person, gave to charity, raised a good family. All these things. We think sometimes that there's this checklist at the end that God has for us. And it is not true. There is only one box on the checklist. And it is, have you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ? And if yes, you're in. If no, you're out. That is so important for us to know. And it was so important in the text because people couldn't pay them for receiving these things. They had to believe freely. They had to believe freely. A good example of this is in a sermon I was listening to by a guy called Tim Keller. And explained that imagine you were given a billion dollar diamond, not just a million dollar diamond, but a 
billion dollar diamond. This diamond is the most beautiful diamond that's ever been seen in the world. It's the size of my fist. It's a billion carats as well. It's a billion carat, billion dollar diamond. I don't know if that's possible, but you can imagine how wonderful this diamond is. Imagine that you were given this diamond. You received it. Would you feel good about that wonderful gift? Or would you try and pay them back? Of course, you may not have a billion dollars at your disposal. And so you might rummage around your wallet, pull out the $30 that you've got and sort of try and give it back to them and say, oh, you know, that'll do, won't it? Or at least I've given them something. That would not actually honour the person who gave you the gift. That would dishonour them. It's worth a billion dollars. It's the most beautiful diamond in all the universe. How could you offer them $30 for this diamond? It makes a mockery of the value of the gift. And that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. There is no payment that can be received for it. It is the most amazing gift in all the universe that Jesus, the Son of God, would die for you and rise from the dead, that you might have forgiveness from sin and eternal life. And there is no payment that can be made for it. In fact, if you try to pay for it, it makes a mockery of the gift itself. And so as these disciples are sent out, they're not to take any money. They're to proclaim the good news. And those who are worthy would receive them. And those who are not worthy would come under God's judgment. Those that are worthy receive it freely. They recognize the worth of the gift and therefore become worthy. Not because of anything good they've done by themselves, but because of the worth of the gift and the goodness of the giver. There is a beautiful story in Luke chapter 15, and I'll finish with this. That many of us have felt like, and some of us have felt like we've been running away from God for a long time. We may have rejected the offer of the great big diamond. I thought, oh, I'll just do life on my own. I don't need big diamonds. I don't need Jesus in my life. I can make it on my own. Religion's not for me. It might be good for you. And then we do wonder that if we did want to come back, what it would be like. Whether the good shepherd would be waiting for us with a stick to beat us, to bring us back into line, or with open arms. And the parable of the prodigal son tells us exactly what God is like and how he is waiting for us when we turn. There was this father who had two sons, and one of the sons stayed home and stayed amongst the household and served his father faithfully. Another son took his inheritance early, said, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want the money now. And left. Spent everything. Spent absolutely everything. Came to the end of himself. Was like eating with pigs. In fact, the pigs were eating better than him. It was so at the end of himself. And he realized, I can't do this anymore. It's too bad. This life is not good. I've realized that it was so much better in my father's house. So he rehearses in his head what he's going to say. He rehearses in his head. He says, Father, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. And if you'll just make me a slave in your household, I'll come back and serve you. So he doesn't want to come back as a son. He wants to come back as a slave. So he decides, he turns around and he comes back. 
And in the story that Jesus tells, the father is looking over the horizon. He's actually waiting for his son to return. And when he sees his son, the father runs to him. And in the first century, fathers do not run. They do not run to a son who wished that he was dead and took the inheritance early. But the father runs. He embraces his son. The son gets out. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And then the father just cuts him off with hugs and restores him fully. Gives him the ring, the robe, and kills the fattened calf that he may be brought back into the family. This story tells us, and Jesus tells us in this story, that if you will turn back to him, he will have you with open arms. And he's not waiting with a stick. He's waiting with grace. He's waiting to restore you, not as a slave, but as a son, to join the family. And it's good news. I'm going to pray now as the band comes up. Father God, we praise you for this good news about your son Jesus and the grace that he welcomes us and invites us into. Thank you for the grace about how we go and how we be your people and also the grace for how we're sent and for those who might receive it. And we pray that today that what we've heard and what we've learned might go into our hearts, not just to be words, but to be life and truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.